what I found is that people were were portraying two different personas almost over social media and what their real self was. I call this vanity validation, right? Where you're seeking more validation through electronic likes instead of life. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I am so excited about today's guest. Clarissa Silva is a behavioral scientist, researcher, and relationship coach with 17 years of experience in mental health, behavioral science, and public health. She is the founder of C. Silva Solutions, LLC, a research and consulting firm that provides evidence-based solutions to companies and individuals. She developed a technique, Your Happiness Hypothesis, based on her research and practice that provides evidence-based solutions to address some of the suboptimal relationship challenges that are occurring in today's technology-driven dating world. Clarissa is also the author of a very tongue-in-cheek relationship wellness blog, You're Just a Dumbass, to help people maintain healthy relationships, and avoid some of the difficult life lessons that one encounters in poor relationships. Her work focuses on research and data-driven techniques that she developed to help clients with creating relationship wellness in their lives. Clarissa has been featured on Fox, NBC, Huffington Post Live, ABC, CBS, PR Newswire, Google, Vice, Broadly, Stylecaster, Bustle, Elite Daily, Glamour, Yahoo!, and many others. Clarissa, welcome to the show. No, thank you, Dr. Richard. I'm honored to be on your show. I mean, I'm amongst amazing and incredible thought leaders. Thank you. You know, what is so interesting about you, and I appreciate your kind words, is that you have really delved into quite a number of different things, and your background is very interesting. So what I like to do with a lot of my guests is I, I like to kind of take it back to what put you on the path you're on and what inspired you as you were growing up or going through your training to move on and become a grown-up in the real world, so to speak? Yeah, thank you. That's that's funny and fun. Um, So I'm a behavioral scientist and researcher, and I was actually trained in infectious disease and spent 17 years of my career in HIV-AIDS, Um, both globally and domestically, Um, in a wide range of different capacities. I started off um, doing clinical work, and then I moved into um, administration. And administration, I went from, you know, local government to the UN. I worked, you know, in the U.S., Africa, um, Costa Rica, and Brazil, all all really targeting um, pandemics. 
So I, I enjoyed creating wellness models and life sustainability models for, for the HIV AIDS population. But I did, I did feel like I wanted a shift from the disease model to the wellness model. Interestingly enough, though, like as you deal with any any sexual communicable disease, your uh, the core of of their challenges really are relationships. So I was co- I was constantly dealing with relationship issues in addition to a constellation of disease factors. So I I always did enjoy more the the relationship side of of dealing with just the challenges of of not just the disease area but life itself right i mean each person was just looking to find a decent human being to form a life with and a family with you know they didn't they didn't expect to wake up and find themselves either first time being diagnosed with hiv or aids transmitting it to their child or burying their partner some some time in the future. So I wanted to move into more wellness. So that's when I started. I started, you're just a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> As a very tongue-in-cheek relationship wellness blog based on some of the techniques that, that I created that help establish relationship wellness with patients over 17 years. So... I want to spend a little time talking about you're just a dumbass because it is just very fun to say. And you said that it was a tongue-in-cheek wellness <laughs> blog involving relationships. At what point when you were doing that did you think this could be something that's not so tongue-in-cheek and something that could lend itself towards very significant work in the realm of relationships for you? Well, I got I to gotta say that I created You're Just a Dumbass um, to really help people select and maintain healthy relationships and avoid some of the difficult life, life lessons that that you encounter in suboptimal relationships, right? And I got to say that I started the blog as a conversation with myself <laughs> about my own experiences and some of the, the behavior modification models that I created for myself as I was going through real life dating and online dating. And it made me think about the utility of applying a lot of these models to just anyone that was interested in changing their outcomes. I think if you're not producing the results you want, right? So your your end goal is, okay, I'd like to find a decent human being that I could be happy with. But instead, you find yourself dating one crazy after the other crazy or finding yourself in suboptimal situations because everybody has their their own constellation of issues. Some are truthful about them. Some aren't. So so I thought, you know, why don't I just create a open public science project blog that it's a place where people could go to either affirm their experience or seek information that that could change their the suboptimal situation they're in, right? So I really wanted to remove the clinical barriers and provide any reader with true 
open public science where they could go in and say, oh, my God, she just went on a ridiculous date with this guy who who likes to play naked with his dog. That's ridiculous. I just went on a date that this guy liked to do X with his cat. (laughs) So that level of relatability and and normalization to the craziness of what, what then was online dating, which was kind of a unique approach to dating when I was doing it. Well, we definitely don't want to talk about the X with the cat, but I I am very interested in a couple of things that you said. You used the term suboptimal several times. And what I think is interesting about that is, of course, you, know, you mentioned dating the crazies, but a lot of people don't think about relationships in terms of optimal versus suboptimal. They think of them in terms of compromise. But what I'm getting from you is that this open science that you put out there was basically to tell people that they don't have to compromise. Right, right. So I think when I thought about what I would want to label the blog, right, if I was going to call it cognitive behavioral techniques to improve your relationship outcomes designed by a behavioral scientist, no one would read it, right? <laughs> so i thought you know if i didn't have the label of clinician if i didn't have the label of behavioral scientist and i was just really just getting down to the nitty-gritty of what i would see both in in hiv practice and and private practice with non-hiv i would always say to myself after a, the, the series of of taking their histories and 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 their their course of of therapy, I would always say the same thing. Either I was saying that they were just a dumbass, or I was just a dumbass, or their partner was just a dumbass. So I now, of course, I wouldn't say this in practice, right? But if I but when I started designing the concept, I thought. If I just go, and I was anonymous for the first two years of the blog, so I didn't have to be worried about, okay, if patients see this, if, you know, if, if my peers see this, right? So because I was anonymous and no one knew it was me behind the blog, I thought, you know, this is me just saying what I wish I could have said so many times throughout practice, which each, because everything is, everything is very, very similar, Right. You could you could cluster so many different themes for what people are doing, how they're doing it and why why the behavior is is manifesting the way it does. You can cluster all that. You could create themes just based on hearing, you know, in New York City, it's at the end after 17 years. I I can't even tell you how many hundreds of thousands of patients that is. Right. (laughs) So so I thought. I just want to be honest. I just want to be honest. And I, I want to, I want people to understand that, yes, I'm calling it something harsh. Like you're just a dumbass, but I really have two ways of looking at things, right? Optimally and suboptimally, because those things are, those things are very subjectively defined, right? What is optimal for one, one couple is completely suboptimal for another, so there's no way for me to label it as, all right, this is 
this is just poor, poor dating behavior, right? Or this is great dating behavior because it varies. It varies so much for different people. And that is, that is the one thing that even though we could classify behavior in themes, it all is so unique to the individual. So I really wanted to keep a lot of, a lot of the things that we would typically label as negative or positive I really want to stay away from that and, and couch it in in a way that people would always think of the optimal outcome first, you know? I really like that a lot. And language is so powerful. You know, just thinking about suboptimal versus negative, we immediately get a different connotation when we think of those two words. So that's fantastic. And, you know, using your anonymity behind the blog, you're able to, you know, do some things differently than you would have otherwise. But what I want to do is revisit something you touched on. And I know we're going to spend a good amount of time here because you mentioned the online dating. And dating is evolving immensely because we are in a digital world like never before. So talk to us about how dating has changed and continues to change as a result of technology. So we have a shift from people wanting not to use online dating to a generation that exclusively dates online. And because we only have one generation um, and not even one full generation of data, right? Our understanding is so young in this area. So over the last like four years of my work, I decided to turn my area of practice to better understanding dating behavioral trends and its impact on self-esteem, self-awareness, and decision-making. I think the current dating market is creating what I call the dating paradox. It's giving off the illusion of many choices while making it harder to find viable options. And it's also creating the illusion of having more social engagement, social capital, and popularity, but also allowing people to mask one's true persona, right? So give us some examples of that, what you mean by that. So, yeah, perfect, right? So the dating trends like ghosting, benching, breadcrumbing, zombieing, window shopping, you know, and whatever other other new nuanced dating label we could use are not new behavioral patterns, right? They're merely ways to weigh out your options, right? So these ghosting, benching, zombieing, all window shopping, all of these things have have one thing in common. They're meeting um, exclusively online, right? And they're establishing a date. And then the person continues to weigh out different options while they're all just dating online, right? But there's a there's a lag in time between that second, third, or fourth date. Sometimes that lag in time is about four months and the person resurfaces and the person that was waiting for that second date gives them a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance. And I see this as just an extension of how we use our social media streams. We're treating people like we do our social media streams. The shiniest object is what we stop at. And then we move to the next shiny object. 
But the problem is, is that the person that was the shiny object is waiting to have their outcome fulfilled. They were looking for a date. (laughs) They were looking for a decent person out of the thousands that they scroll through to establish what they want. They wanted a date. (laughs) So if we look at the latest market research, right, we spend three seconds to determine if what we're looking at is worth further investigation, right? So if that margin occurs in dating, and what goes into the decision-making process? Obviously, very, very superficial things. <laughs> right. Right. I was curious about this. So I conducted in-depth interviews with men and women ranging from ages 28 to 73. And that study is what, what I've entitled Your Happiness Hypothesis Study. And the, the 28 to 73 sample were active online dating users and when we asked rank their five top characteristics that they use to choose people online to determine if they're dating potential, people listed off five. But then when they were down to making the decision of whether you swipe left or right, people still only chose two or three to determine who they were going to swipe yes and yes and no to. So it's it's interesting that we have a truncated decision span and we're using even more truncated elements and data to determine how we're going to select that outcome. But there's there's another observation that I found when I was conducting the happiness hypothesis study. Um, I found that because we're interfacing more digitally than physically, it's a lot easier to emotionally manipulate others, right? So what I found is that people were were portraying two different personas almost over social media and what their real self was. I call this vanity validation, right? Where you're seeking more validation through electronic likes instead of life. So what we're what I found was that the narratives that people share and portray on social media or media are all positive and celebratory. What what's broadcasted are the positives, positive aspects of our lives, the highlight reels, meaning for some, sometimes it appears everyone, you know, are in great relationships, taking five star vacations, living your dream life when you're really having trouble finding someone to commit to a second date. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you. And I can't wait to see where you'll go. Clarissa, I'm interested in something because online dating has existed before social media. So 
you know, we, we had uh, Match.com, I think, was the first big one out there, at least the one that I remember from televisions prior to Facebook existing. So now in this world of social media where, you know, we have this vanity validation, as you called it, and I'm familiar with research, which very much supports your hypothesis as well. What about the online dating? Did Do you happen to know the research or the numbers to suggest that online profiles for a lot of people, you know, were, are created generally in the same way. I mean, obviously, you know, we're not putting our huge, you know, deficits and red flags <laughs> in our dating profiles, but did you see the same kind of pattern for, you know, the match.coms of the world and other type of dating sites? So one of the, one of the top three things that women complain about um, for dating profiles is inaccurate photos, uh, incongruent uh, information from profile to actual meeting on a date. Um, and they complained about discrepancies between what they found on, on their online dating profiles and their social media networks. Men complain about photograph not being consistent with what they look like in real life was was the the major major gripe that men have and the second leading gripe that men have is that they they found women to be more disingenuous about what they say they wanted versus what they actually reported on dates of what they wanted so meaning that the same thing is occurring on online dating profiles you know, with things like the newer sites like Match and eHarmony, the traditional, you know, freestanding website allowed for you to elaborate and provide a narrative. The newer apps are just just small snippets of information. There's no narrative really. You have to you have to dig for the narrative. You just base it on um, just quick and dirty demographics, geography, you know, what your appearance is and and the proximity to the person. So they don't have a lot of data to go on. But for the traditional sites that were relying on, on good data, men lied more about their height, women lied more about their weight, men lied about more about their jobs, their income, and, and some of the characteristics that they had. Of course, you want to try to portray things that you think will get the most clicks when you're on the traditional site. So, of course... They they did. And women lied more about weight, um, lied more about their photographs, but were were pretty consistent on on um, their income and uh, job. All of these current dating trends, um, it's it's the new form of rejection without having to physically reject somebody. So. What ghosting, benching, breadcrumbing, zombieing, and window shopping all, all are is that people will, after they swipe and, and establish initial co- uh, communication, they'll set up a date, right? Say they say, then they meet in real life, they go on maybe a second or third date, and then all of a sudden the person just discontinues communication with them or has limited truncated communication with them, starts blowing them off, starts not responding to their texts or calls or chats or 
So this, this could go on for a period of weeks or months of just no or limited communication. And, you know, and if they do reach out, what they'll say is, yes, let's reconnect. Let's, let's get back together. But then that never materializes. So there's three or four things that marks some of the new um, dating behaviors. So they'll just discontinue communication abruptly. They'll limit their communication, not respond in some cases or respond very, very late. Create uh, fake fake dates because they, they're never going to follow through. And then after a series of weeks or months of the person say, you're waiting for me to contact you to have our third date. And I started doing all these erratic things of blowing you off for weeks, not, not returning your text till, you know, seven days later or saying, yes, you know, let's, let's hook up for dinner and then saying, oh, sorry, I can't tonight, last minute, you know, and then not reaching out to you for, for another seven weeks. And each time I reach out to you, you say, okay, fine, then let's get together. And then I say, okay, let's do it tomorrow. And then I blow you off another seven weeks. So now a series of months go by where I've just stopped even bothering to do this fake (laughs) dating thing. Well, you still might think, okay, I wonder what was up with her. Why is she such a flake? Or I was thinking, oh, you know what? I'm just going to keep this person around as an option. I'll reach out to him in the next swing of, of empty lag in my date pool. So then I reach out to you six months later and say, hey, how are you? And then you're like, what? Hey, what's going on? So then they... So it's common for the millennials to resume communication and resume a relationship again. Millennials will give will, will give each other a second and third and fourth chance where for like past 35 and into the 40s, once that happens once in 40 year olds and higher just discontinue all communication with that person. And if they reach out, they just don't ever respond back. So it's it's a way of rejecting without rejecting, but keeping the other person as an option. And they still think they're they're considered a dating potential because the person will continue to engage them on social media while they blow them off. So for the millennials, if you like an Instagram photo of theirs, or you like a post they wrote on Facebook, to them, that's still an interaction and that's still communication. That signals to them, okay, I'm not off the radar. I'm still I'm still in the running. So I guess we're still in a relationship. So let's continue talking about people's highlight reels, because I think this is such an interesting topic. So what else did you find there? Well, you know, I think I think when we think about if we're only sharing the positive aspects of our lives, the highlight reels, right? And we're comparing it to ourselves. It's, it's, it's only natural to have reactions to what we're watching. So in the happiness hypothesis study, I really wanted to examine, well, how does that impact relationships? How does that impact your dating? And how does it impact your self-esteem? Right? Because it would be interesting to it was interesting for me to understand the the really the millennial mind work of 
likes on Instagram, likes on Facebook, them reaching out in in the social world meant they were still resuming a relationship. So in the happiness hypothesis, I found that 60% of people using social media and that were active um, online dating users, so online dating apps, reported that it did impact their self-esteem in a negative way. 60% said that social media was impacting them in a negative way. I want to explore how how social media was maybe impacting their relationships. If it was, because so many studies report that there's positive effects on, on relationships when you look at the lens of social media. But I found that 50% reported social media having negative effects on their relationships. The other feature that I found was that 80% reported that it's easier to deceive others through their social posting. So I think all of these, all of these findings really indicate that we're really looking at are we living through the lens of social media instead of life? Or are we looking through the lens of life and trying to streamline it differently to social media? But it either combination is still having internal effects on, on people, right? They're, they're internalizing lower self-esteem, we see higher rates of depression and we see things like social media jealousy. Social media jealousy is when you're looking at other people's life and you're jealous that you're not, (laughs) you're not getting that in your own. So you've mentioned some of these findings on social media and they're striking. I'm wondering, Clarissa, are there any differences in your findings between how this plays out for men versus women? Like I reported um, earlier on the differences between millennials and Gen Xers, right? So some of some of the differences were that men were reporting higher levels of ghosting than women, right? Ghosting, benching, breadcrumbing, all those, all the current, let's just label them current dating trends, right? Um, all those, all those new current dating trends, we saw a higher amount of men doing the the current dating trends, ghosting. Women were doing it less. Women felt more jealousy over looking at other women and other men's profiles. So what, and we did, and we isolated out the social stalking, right? You know, there are some that social stalk their exes or guys that ghost them and wonder, okay, is he dating somebody else? What is he doing? Where is he? What is he? He's at the coffee shop. (laughs) I mean, and this is the level of of detail that they get into. He's at the coffee shop house at 10 o'clock. He could have called me because he didn't go back to work till 2 p.m. when I saw his post. (laughs) So this is what they, (laughs) this is, 
this is the level of detail that they're collecting, right? So women express more jealousy than than men, and men over 40 were less likely to resume conversations once they they quote unquote met with a flaky woman. So you know, women that were ghosting, because we found that women were ghosting men more in their 40s than men were ghosting women in their 40s, but men were more more uh, dismissive than when than women were and detected right away when um when women were being when women were being flaky. So in a way, the 40s kind of helped them fine-tune their red flags detector and they just walked away from making a you know a poor decision in their in their relationship choice. Interesting. And were there any patterns that you evidenced that were the same across both genders? Uh, so for both, um, the funny is that both had similar uh, levels of lowered self-esteem. And the, and the ghosting, benching, or breadcrumbing patterns cut across both generations and I, I, I enhanced the sample to include a European sample, and it even cut across the European sample. So not only did we demonstrate um, that the that the behavior has has intergenerational, it has an intergenerational pattern. It also has a global pattern. So we tested the the concept in London, Switzerland, and Paris, and and all those three countries matched to different cities in in the U.S. All showed that both genders had lowered self esteem when it came to their they were not they were not able to understand why they were being ghosted, benched, or breadcrumbs, why they, why these suboptimal dating pseudo-rejections were occurring to them. So that was the cross-cutting data point that we found in our, in our study, was that ghosting and benching was happening across generations and across the globe. And that... And it was having negative self-esteem issues. And people were also behaving the same way in Europe as they were in America. They were all they were all giving people the benefit of the doubt in the beginning. And women more than well, I want to say women more than men just slightly were were always surprised by the abrupt termination of, of communication. And I want to transition us a little bit because communication obviously is something that you have tremendous expertise in as part of your scientific training as a, rather as part of your training as a behavioral scientist. But I want to shift and talk about the other work that you're involved in, which connects to this, but is very different and very interesting. So talk to us a little bit about what you're doing with C. Silva Solutions. Similarly, um, for C. Silva Solutions, I provide companies with methods that help address their consumer needs using scientific and, and mathematical approaches. 
So my latest client is Google, where I'm helping design the dating and relationship vertical for Google+. And the goal here is to provide the consumer with high-quality content on relationships and dating. So for this project, my co-founder slash co-creator, Pamela Abi Najim, and I architectured four distinct models, a recruitment, content, search and discovery, and marketing model, all principally to, to help find the best ways to have the algorithm perform. So it's kind of like mm, what I created for people and dating, I kind of created for the computer dating people. So I'm interested because you've started to talk about some of these differences between millennials and Gen Xers, uh, but we didn't really go into depth about what happens when those two different groups face rejection. So... For women, it's the first time that they'll experience rejection at the rates that they, they're experiencing it. And, and it's, it's astronomical compared to previous generations, right? Because previous generations, I mean, we still had outdoors. We still had brick and mortar dating, you know? And how many women were going to get turned down at a bar, right? <laughs> like... So, so for the first time, we're seeing women just dealing with that rejection, right? So if they get, so if they swipe, uh, say, 100 times per day, and only two are responding back, that has impact on her self-esteem. She begins to internalize that rejection. So this is where I think it's, it would be brilliant, and I've written about this before, if women can begin adapting what men have for eons, right? So for men, that same, that same rejection rate becomes a scale to them, <laughs> right? They've learned to adapt their methods based on their rejection experiences, Right. I joke around saying that men must keep a stats card like they do sports in their mind about their dating track record. Something like I struck out with this 20 times. So I tried this and got my desired outcome or I got a better outcome. Right. I think that's a brilliant method. (laughs) Like I think that. I think probably getting rejected from women and and coping and adapting with it is probably the one of the better life preparing skills that men have that women can learn from. So I think it's a method that women should adapt as a protective factor against rejection. I think they should do the same thing. I think they should collect data on what they want and don't want and keep a stats card like the male sports card where they could recite what happened to a player, their, their performance history, how well they did. So essentially you're creating your own, you're, you're creating your own science and math. Right. So I started, I started thinking about this and thinking about what, what are the differences of why, why it's, could be a challenge for women, right? Because women tend, 
we tend to see things for what we'd like to see and not for what they really are because we begin discounting data to affirm the positive aspects of what we want. And then we ignore some of the red flags because we think those are aspects we could change, right? And and just like I cited before, if you chose five characteristics, you're really only down to two, right? So you're discounting data all the time. But for both genders, the end goal is to find a partner they can be happy with, right? So, so it made me create my happiness hypothesis, which originally when I created the concept was, was a mathematical approach to dating, right? I wanted them to... To collect, to go on dates and treat it like it's a social experiment. All of all of what you're hearing and everything that you're that you're experiencing, those are data points. Those are data points based on what you want and what you don't want. And with each date, I I want people to document what it what combination works best for them. So that's what led me to develop these relationship decision making tools. Um, that I'm calling the Your Happiness Hypothesis Series. So 